Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to George Ezra and Friends, the podcast. And this week, I can't believe I'm saying this, but this week, our guest is the one and only, the legendary Sir Tom Jones. And I can't tell you, I can't even begin to tell you how much I enjoyed recording this conversation. Um, It was just, Tom very kindly invited me over to his place, which was, you know, very surreal, and to sit down in front of the man himself and talk to him about everything that he's done to make this a reality and, you know, keep music in his life uh, at every every turn. Um, And he just loves it, you know, he loves singing and it's just, it's so inspiring to sit down with somebody that loves what they do as much as this man loves singing. Um, And also, Tom Jones is one of those people, I assume, all of us feel as if we know a little bit about. He's been a part of our lives for, well, especially as I'm aware, for as long as I can remember. It's just such a fascinating story. I know I shouldn't pick favourites, don't tell the other guests, but I think this might be one of my... I need to get off the... This was my favourite episode to listen back to so far. I absolutely loved it. Um, So I hope you all enjoy it. Uh, of course, at the halftime break, we will hear a word from our partners at Mind Charity. Now, Mind are a group of people, and their main goal is to help all of us and our mental health. Um, so, thank you very much, Mind. Um, we will hear from you at the halftime break. And if you're listening with children, there might be one or two naughty words, one or two swear words, but I'm giving you a heads up. So, there you go. That might happen. Um, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Sir Tom Jones. So, thank you very much for inviting me over and meeting me today. That's all right. It's amazing. Um, There's a lot of things I've been very excited about us talking about. Um, Yeah. uh, And I think... What is most interesting, or is very interesting, or what I admire the most in people is just their love for what they do. Yeah, sure. Um, and I've been completely submerged in the world of Tom Jones for the last two weeks, oh, okay. yeah, which has been brilliant. <laughs> and it, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's been a real pleasure to just lose myself in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the part one, one thing that I find most amazing is to give it context is, you know, your upbringing and where you started. Yeah, um, it, it's uh, it's an amazing story. I don't know if you'd care to just yeah, start sure. at the beginning. Well, I mean, um, South Wales was where I was born and brought up, and um, it was it was a great place to uh, to grow up because it was a, a town as opposed to a city, and um, there were hills all about, you know. It was all around, so it was a great, great place, you know, to uh, to grow up because you could, you just outside your front door, you know, you'd run up up the hills. And also, the and smaller it, a place you grow up, the more community there is. Oh, definitely. You know, the, the, you know your neighbours, and you. Well, that was the thing, you know, because my my father was one of six, the youngest of six children, and my mother was the youngest of six children, and they all lived in Pontypridd. No way! So yeah. you had aunties, you know, aunties, and uncles. Yeah, all over. All over the, you know, in close proximity. You know, my cousins growing up was um, was great, and there was a lot of singing involved, a lot of lot of parties on the weekend in the community. Yeah, and especially you know because my father, um, his brothers were living very close, and the same thing with my mother. 
with her sisters and we're all all very close so we would be in one another's houses and especially on the weekends you know um, when they go for a few drinks yeah, yeah, and yeah. come back to the house it would either be in our house or one of my auntie's house or my uncle's houses you know and um, we were always encouraged to sing you know she would turn to sing now so that was and would they have been songs from like folk songs church songs hymns yeah a mixture it okay. was because uh, I went to a Presbyterian chapel so on a Sunday afternoon Sunday school you know we would sing and they would be hymns okay. that we would uh, that we would sing there. But then we would sing in school, you know. With um, but I but I liked I liked getting up on on a Friday afternoon, for instance. You know, the teacher she would say, "Well, I've got to get the registers together now, so you children, you know, amuse yourselves doing something orderly." So I would get up, and we would have like little concerts no way yeah on a friday on a friday afternoon so i would be master of ceremonies most of the time yeah and uh kids would get up and you know and sing or recite poetry or something yeah, yeah. so that again was a great opportunity to uh, to sing and did but you pop songs you know pop songs of the of the day then and what would they have been can you remember what songs yeah, you would have chosen well, to sing yeah yeah when i when i was very young it was ghost riders in the sky there was a guy called Vaughn Monroe, uh -huh. and he sang this uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky. So I, I loved that song. So I liked, it was always American uh, songs, yeah. mostly, and then British people would cover them, you know. Mm. And um, so I was always listening to, to American songs. So they were, you know, pop songs. Uh, and how would you have heard, was that all radio based? All radio. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, other people singing. You know, in the, when I was old enough to go to uh, to a club, it was called the Wood Road Non-Political Club, <laughs> that we all went to. You know, all the families went there. Yeah, yeah. So then I would hear people get up and sing. Oh, there. okay, so they will have heard, because if you're relying on the radio, you don't know when you're going to hear that song next again. That's right. But you'd go to the club mm. and someone would sing a song you might not have heard. Yeah. And then you know their version. Exactly. And then the record shop, you know, the, the local okay. record shop in Pontypridd. I would go and, you know, they would be playing uh, records. Would they let you go in and pick up records to play in the shop and then leave without buying? Was that uh, okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You, could, you could say, can I, can I, can I hear that? Because but they would handle the record. And yeah, they had a speaker over the door, okay. yeah. you know, in the, and it was in the centre of Pontypridd where the fountain was. There was a drinking fountain there. So... Um, there was this uh, record shop called Freddie Faye's mm -hmm. and they would play records, especially on a weekend, you know, when we were out of school, we would be there on a Saturday listening to um, to what to popular records. Okay, so you'd go down, that would be your kind of entertainment yeah, the meeting, the they, yeah, 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 a little meeting place there by the fountain. And um, so they would, they would be playing records there. And then you'd go in and ask if you'd heard something on the radio, do you have such and such a song ah. by such and such a, an artist? And then they would uh, they play it. Would they ever was ordering in something? If someone really wanted a particular record, could you put in a request for them to order it yeah. from America? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, they would they would be a lot of the stuff were, were, was being released uh, in Britain mm -hmm. at that time. Sometimes I would hear things that um, because uh, listen, uh, living close to Cardiff there would be a lot of merchant seamen bringing stuff back from the States. 
that, that they picked up on on their travels. Yeah, that that wasn't out in in Britain yet. And Van Morrison was telling me that that used to happen in Belfast as well. The seamen there as well. Yeah, they would come home with, uh, and the same thing in Liverpool. Okay. You know, so the Beatles heard a lot of stuff that were being brought back that wasn't out here yet. So the same thing in in Cardiff, you know. Yeah, yeah. Outside Ports. of Cardiff. Yeah, exactly. Ports. So we would listen to uh, to sometimes to American records that that were not played on the radio yet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we'd get the jump on that, you know. And you, and that was a shared interest to you and your friends. That was all kind of yeah. Was it obvious to you at any point that you were more interested than others, or or the people weren't as interested in the same way? Maybe. Yeah, I, I think maybe I was more interested in in what was um, coming out mm. in in the states, you know. And and again with. Um, when rock and roll kicked in, you know, in 1955, I was 15 years old. So perfect. Yeah. And I thought everybody was, was, was getting hit with this, with this music. Yeah, yeah. But not, not all. You know, some of my cousins were listening to uh, musicals. Okay, show tunes and stuff like exactly, that. Exactly, show tunes. Ah. Some of them would be listening to that, you know, as a, with, with me. It was, uh, you know, Elvis Presley and Bill Haley and the Comets and Jerry Lee Lewis, yeah. and Little Richard, Fats Domino, you know, all those people. Would you introduce people to it? If you had found it first, say, eh, would oh, yeah. you get a kick out of being, hey, come and look what I found? Yeah, and, and when they would play records in Freddie Face, for instance, on a Saturday, uh, or somebody would hear somebody being played, they would come to me and say, look, I heard so-so, so-so. Mm. Have a listen, what do you think of this? They would be, uh, so... Maybe they would look at me as a, a bit of a, an aficionado yeah, of, of, yeah, of yeah. what was happening because I was very interested in it. Yeah. But I mean, even before rock and roll music, there was a lot of um, boogie records that were coming out by Tennessee Ernie Ford, Blackberry Boogie and Shotgun Boogie. So I think that was the forerunner that I heard to, to rock and roll. You know, so, so that was definitely a big change, though. I remember... A recording of Tennessee Ernie Ford. It's the is it sixteen times? Sixteen times. Oh, I just loved that. Yeah, I loved. I recorded that afterwards, yeah. you know, because I loved it so much. Because of his version. Yeah, um, I did wonder when I mm. heard it. Yeah, yeah. And it was funny because I he came to see my show then in the states. Did Tennessee Ernie Ford. Yeah, and I said that uh, this the man here tonight that I got this song sixteen ton and it was from him, and uh, so I did it on stage then. Did you get to meet him? Yeah, yeah. So it was yeah. it was great. Yeah. And so what happens between the Friday night, uh, the Friday afternoon kind of school time show mm -hmm. and tell performances? Yeah. And then, you know, the dawn of rock and roll and you being 15. Yeah. Were you, were you as excited, excitable by music? What, like, what was your outlet after the classroom? Were mm. you performing? Yeah, no, not um, when I was in school, not so much you know, because we were too young mm. to go into the pubs and clubs and stuff, you know, so, but I would be, uh, the only t chance I would get there would be parties, mm. as I was saying, but coming from a large family, you know, of cousins and I aunties see. and uncles and stuff, you know, we were, everybody sang. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and when it did come to a time where you were going out to play in pubs and clubs, mm. How big was that circuit? Would you go from town to town, or would you ever travel into Cardiff? Yeah, well, the, um, when we started off, it was just local. 
you oh. know, in the pubs and, and the how clubs. old would you be when you started out? Um, I when I first seventeen. Okay. When I first sang in the local club, you're supposed to be eighteen, but I was. I got. <laughs> I, said, I said I was eighteen, but I was only seventeen. So somebody didn't show up. I remember one, one Saturday. Um, a singer, you know, didn't show because they used to book these singers, you know, and concert parties they used to call them. So these like little shows would come to the local clubs, and they would have a singer, uh, a juggler, you know, and a oh, okay, all like different variety, like a little show, yeah, a little show, self-contained show. But there was always a lot of singing involved. So this one Saturday, this concert party didn't show up, so the secretary of the club who used to run the, the, the shows, mm. said, um, do you want to go and get your guitar? Because he heard that I was playing guitar a bit and uh, bring it down and, you know, sing a few songs, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll pay you. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was like, I think he gave me a pound for, <laughs> for, for about six songs then. So that was, but that rock and roll had kicked in by then, you see, this okay. was... And so you in, jumped up and did the covers that you'd been yeah, learning and... Yeah, exactly. Played guitar. I learned enough chords on the guitar to, to get me through those rock and roll tunes, yeah, yeah. which was only four chords. Yeah, yeah. that's all I outside, use now. Three, three chords mostly, but then sometimes a minor would yeah. come in into play. <laughs> yeah. And um, and that was it. So I, I learned enough chords to, to get through those those songs. Mm. And that was, so that's when I really started performing then in, in pubs and clubs. And I'd learned to play the guitar because you couldn't get accompaniment otherwise. Was there ever a feeling when you were kind of loving this rock and roll hmm. was there ever any pushback from older people in the community or whatever going this isn't the right music for you to oh, be performing yeah. oh yeah right i was working in a, in a glove factory um f i left school in 1955 i was 15 and um i started to work in this local glove factory i could walk there from you know from my house <laughs> And it was funny because a lot of the, I, w I was an apprentice glove cutter. You learned to cut gloves by hand, you know, with the, you just have a ruler and a big shears and a scissors mm. and you stretch leather and, and cut these gloves out of it. So I was learning that and they would play music on the radio all day, you know, to keep you, keep you happy. And these glove cutters that I was learning the trade from were amateur musicians. Most of them were playing in dance bands. Oh no way! Yeah, so when when um, Rock Around the Clock came on, that was the first rock and roll record that I that I heard, and I'm like, wow, you know, the sound of it was so different from the other stuff. Yeah, and I was like, and I was like, wow, I was singing along with it, you know, once once it was played a few times, and they would say to me, what are you listening to that crap for, you know? <laughs> I said, what what what? And they said, you know, it's a 12 bar blues. Yeah. I didn't know what they were talking about. And I said, well, I just love the sound of it. It just sounds different from, from this other stuff. You know, and um, so they were in dance bands. Okay. And they would say, you know, I said, well, where are you, you, know, where are you playing? What kind of stuff do you play? Because yeah. they were listening to Count Basie and Duke Ellington, you know, band uh, music. And... Um, so I would go and watch some of these fellas, but they were not playing what they were, you know, they were preaching one thing and playing another. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, because they had to play yeah, yeah. Um, stuff that people could dance to. 
and sometimes they wouldn't be able to do what they really wanted, you know, the Count Basie yeah. stuff and, you know, really good, cool, um, big band music. But they were playing dance band music. Okay. And I said, you know, you're not, you're not playing what, you, what you're preaching. Yeah. And um, so then, you know, I started singing locally because I wanted to do what, what I was listening to on the radio then, you know, which was, uh, which was Bill Haley was, was first. And then Elvis Presley came along, you know, and, because we didn't hear uh, on British radio, they were not playing the original records as much as they were playing cover versions, right. even in the States, you know, like Shake, Rattle and Roll, mm -hmm. Bill Haley and the Comets that I hit with, but then I, it was a big Joe Turner record that was the original. But they wouldn't play the Joe Turner one? No. Okay. They were always playing these, and the same thing in the States, I learned later, that these white covers, you know, were being, uh, and cleaned up lyrics mm. to these funky, um, and dirty kind of yeah black records yeah. really you know most of the performers were black yeah. uh, Little Richard you know and, and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry they played because I don't think anybody else could could cover could, a, do it. <laughs> could cover a Chuck Berry record yeah. you know but they were definitely covering Pat Boone would cover um, Fats Domino ain't that a shame I remember and um, they but I mean Shake Rattle and Roll was was cleaned up. You know, there was uh, verses were changed. Oh, okay. Into a lot of yeah, risque. There was a lot of risque. Yeah, yeah. Elvis got got away with a few of them. Yeah, yeah. He slipped a few in there, yeah. but um, when when Billy Haley and the Comets did it, they uh, they had a there's 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 a line in in Shake Rattle and Roll. You wear those dresses, the sun comes shining through. I can't believe my eyes all that mess belongs to you. Well. They <laughs> they whipped that one out a bit sharp, you know. And then, yeah, with, with Bill Haley, it was you wearing those dresses, your hair done up so nice. Okay, you know. Okay, I see. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. so so they they cleaned those things up, but then when you when you heard the original ones, you know, you thought, well, but they couldn't in those days. They couldn't play it. And I know. I, I think. Um, in 1964, you first travelled down to London. Yeah, when and I came to London. in pursuit yeah. of music and a career in entertainment. Yeah. So that's, you left school 10 years before that. Yeah. How did it grow between those mm -hmm. those years? Well, I started playing in, in pubs and clubs. You and know, you had a, uh, your son by then. Yeah, yeah. My son was born when I, was, I wasn't quite 17. Okay. You know, I got married at 16. So you, had your son just before that you'd started working in the glove factory yeah yeah then at you 15. Had your son mm -hmm. um and i think a lot of people in that situation would say oh, i've got these dreams and these ambitions to do mm. whatever but it, it's the safer option like i've, I've got the job down the road you know mm. this could all be something inside of you said no i'm going to go and pursue this oh yeah definitely you know i mean i was working i would get a, a job to make some money to provide for my wife and son. You know, so I would do anything. I mean, I was in the glove factory, couldn't make enough money there. So then I went to a paper mill, you know, working there long hours to, because I was young, you know, I had to make up the, the time. And then I was selling vacuum cleaners from door to door. I mean, I would do anything to make money. I'm working on building sites. 
but then I would go and sing, you know, in, in the in the pubs of clubs. That's the amazing thing. You work a day, mm. and then at the end of it, down tools and go. Well, I'm going to go and sing now. Yeah, because of the love of it. Exactly. When I was working in this uh, paper mill. Um, I had to work shift work, you know, mornings one week and then afternoons of, uh, another week and then nights. So when I was doing the afternoons and the nights, it was getting in the way. I couldn't go and do shows. So I couldn't wait until I was 21 because when I was in the, in the paper mill, because I was doing a, a man's job, they were give, giving me over the rate of, for my age. You know, when I was a teenager, I was making what I, I should have been 21 in order to, to get that oh, kind of money. No but because I could do the job, I was on a machine, uh, I was getting paid. So I had to hold that job down. Yeah, yeah. You know, until you I was 21. No. But the shift workers, he was getting in the way then uh, of, of getting, you know, into the pubs and clubs. So I was glad to get that out of the way. Once yeah. I, then I went on the building sites, then it was days, you know, working in the daytime, singing at night. So that gave me more chance then. So I had to wait until I was 21 in order to really start yeah, to... Yeah. Was there, I know your your dad worked in the coal, coal mine. yeah. Was that ever a conversation for you? Well, no, because I had TB when I was a kid. I was, from the time I was 12 until I was 14, so that was 1952 until 54, I was bedridden. But I could stay home, you know, a lot of kids had to go um, to these hospitals and TB hospitals. But what, they, what meant that you could stay home? Uh, because the house that we had was up on a hill, and uh, you know it was a, it was a pretty big house. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a, a terrace house, you know, it was a but three story. So they came and had a look at it because my mother said I would rather keep Tommy home if I could, yeah, rather than send him to Scotland or Switzerland because that's where they oh, no were way. sending you got kids. Sent, well, I thought you meant oh, like yeah. your local. Oh no no no! <gasps> the, these TB hospitals. There was one up in Scotland. I remember. And the other option was Switzerland, because you had to get the clean air, because they thought South Wales, you know, coal mining. Yeah. But when they came to see where we lived, it was must have been up above the smog line yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. But it was, anyway, they Good honour for asking. Oh, yeah. Because I'm sure a lot of mothers would have just, them's the rules kind of That's thing. That's right. But they, she said if Tommy's not consent, content, he's not going to get well. You know, he's going to be bothered by it. So uh, they looked at it and said, well, look, if he can have his own room and keep the window open, you know, for fresh air, then, uh, then that's it. So I was, I was, but I had to stay in then for two years. It was part of, I mean, I can think of a hundred reasons why that was so hard, especially at that age. Mm. But if you're a child that loves attention and, you know, being on the stage and, and singing, yeah, and, and singing. I couldn't. And they told me I couldn't sing. That was the worst part. You must have driven you mad. Because they said no, um, you, you, you can nothing energetic. Yeah. You know, so singing they thought was, uh, you know, they wanted me to be quiet and, and calm. So I started, I started drawing and painting. Okay. To 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 take the place really of uh, of singing, but that was the worst part. But then the, the second year. Uh, when I was getting up for an hour a day or two hours, then you know, um, I could st I could start to sing again. Okay, nice. So it was like a year that that I couldn't, you know, that I couldn't sing. And now, when you're talking about 
after this point, you've met your wife, you've had your son, mm -hmm. you're 17, you're working, mm -hmm. and finding time to squeeze in these performances. Yeah. Do you think there's a part of it is because you were deprived of it for those two years, mm -hmm. and you knew what it was like to have nothing going on, that you're going, I'll take everything. You yeah. know, I'll work the shifts, I'll, I'll play the gigs. I'll exactly. Well, when, I, when I, I used to look out the window um, of my house when I had TB, and they, there, was a, there was a lamppost at the end of the street, and the kids used to gather around this lamppost, you know, playing in it. And I used to think, when I can walk to that lamppost, I'll never uh, moan about anything again, I'll never <laughs> complain about anything as long as I live, if I, once I can get to that lamppost. And, uh, and, and, you know, that was it. Because when you're a child and you can't go out and play with the other kids, it's, that's, that's, yeah. that's hard. I can't imagine that. And I, and I look at kids today, you know, that, that are not well and they have to... And I th that's a terrible thing because you, you, need, you need good health, especially, I think, when you're a child. Yeah, and so much know, of that to, is social. Were you allowed to have friends visit you? Uh, not at the beginning because they thought it was catching. Okay. So they kept people away. I was quarantined for a while, and then but then kids would then would come in, and then I had my uh, TV because TV <gasps> I just came out then, so um, nineteen fifty two, and uh, so I got my own television set. Amazing! And then the kids wanted to come in, of course, <laughs> yeah. to have a look at the TV. Yeah, and uh, in the coronation, and it was televised. And I was the only one on the TV in the street. You should have charged. I should have done, yeah. <laughs> I should have done. <laughs> but that was, you know, that was... Um, but my mother was fantastic, yeah. you know, because it was a three-story house, and the room that I had was on uh, the second floor, or one floor up, you know, from the ground floor. So that's the first floor, really. Um, so she would be down in the kitchen and be up and down those stairs all the time, yeah. you know, to, to make sure that I was... Because they said... Uh, Tommy can't worry about anything. You know, his, his frame of mind is very important to get him getting like recovery, well. You, you, recovery. Okay. So she would be like catering to to my <laughs> to every need, my every need, whatever they were at the time. But um, but she was tremendous getting me through those those two years. You know, and then um, they got a tutor, and I would have my own tutor then coming in. To, so I wouldn't miss out on lessons. Education. Education. So that, that was a good thing. I think I got more education there with a the, with the tutor than I did if I was, because if I was going distractions to school. Because of one-on-one, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so we got through that. So when, when I finally um, got up and got around again, and, um, but singing was, was always... But I'm still struggling to, like... I, it's not I don't believe you. It's mm. just I can't believe it. More mm. is so you're working these jobs mm. and still finding the energy, the time to, to go out and do the show. Oh yeah, um, I'd, and part of the reason I started the podcast is because there was a realization in me that anyone doing this loves it. Yeah, and there's no other way it works. You have to love it exactly, and that's what I say now. You know, now that I'm on on the Voice and giving um, advice to to young singers when they when they come on i said you've got to want this more than anything else and i i believe talking to you now mm. that had you never had a song that had quite the success of any of your you know the songs you've released mm -hmm. you would still be doing it oh sure and that's the thing i feel in myself oh definitely it was i mean when 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 i used to go and sing in, in and i thought if i could if i could do this for a living 
you know, if I could become a professional singer and not have to go and do a job of work that I, that I don't really like, you know, in order to make money, which a lot of people have to do. I thought if I could just sing, you know, and, and, and get paid for it, oh my God, I mean, that would, that would be it. I mean, I wasn't thinking about hit records then. I was just wanted to be a professional singer, you know, and sing and, and, and not have to do another job of work. Yeah. So then, how was there an invitation down to London? Was there a, an opportunity arise? Yeah. Well, what we what we did was um, we met uh, two fellas that were interested in managing us. But he, they, when you say we, you were my, my a band sorry. Yes. By this time, I'd gotten together with a band. Okay. So I, 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 sh I should talk about that because that was a big uh, stepping stone for me. I mean, I was I was playing guitar myself and going around these clubs and pubs um, with an acoustic guitar, you know, and just doing it like that. But I was limited on, on the guitar. And um, so some songs I would want to do, maybe I couldn't, you know, I mean, I, I would get around them, but, mm. but not all the correct chords were being played. So anyway, so there was, it was a Friday and I was out drinking with some friends of mine because a Friday night, you know, in working class areas, we used to, Friday was out with the boys, yeah, yeah. you know, drinking. And um, a friend of mine was a bass player in the local band. Local cover, they, we didn't call them cover bands then, no, they were rock bands because we were playing rock and roll music of the day, you know. So um, it was on a Friday night and I was in this pub drinking with some friends and he came in and said that their singer hadn't shown up in the YMCA. They were playing a YMCA. And would I go up and sing a few songs? Because they, they didn't have any, there were no singers in the band. They were all instrumentalists, you know. They were, it was three guitars and drums. And uh, would I go and sing? And I said, Vernon, his name was, the, 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 the bass player. I said, this is a Friday night, you know, this is, this is drinking night. You know, <laughs> I sing on a Saturday <laughs> in these clubs. But I, you know, this is Friday. So he said, well, we, we're stuck if you don't come over. I said, oh, okay. And, um, which I did. And then I realized that that was it. That I had to have a rhythm section at least in order to do a wide variety of, of stuff. You know, Roy Orbison had come on the scene by then. And so his songs were a little more, I think, than three three chords. Yeah, yeah. Well, the three chords that I do anyway. And, uh, so, and again, if, if I did a Jerry Lee Lewis number, you know, because Jerry Lee Lewis has always been a big favorite of mine, and I could do Great Balls of Fire, you know, with this band that did, did I mean, I couldn't play it like that. And, um, and I thought, wow, this, this feels great. Even though I didn't rehearse with them, I told them what keys the songs were in, and we were, you know, rattling off Little Richard stuff and, Chuck Berry and again, you know, Chuck Berry. I mean, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't get to Chuck Berry before this, before I signed with this band. So then, I started taking this band into workingmen's clubs that I'd been to myself, which had never been done before. You know, rock and roll music had never been played, you know, in workingmen's clubs in South Wales until I started taking this band in. And I remember the first time. We went into the because I I had the, the the job myself you know they'd booked me with my acoustic guitar 
And then I come with these fellas, you know, with the, with the three guitars and drums. And like it was, they say, pay them off, which means, you know, pay not to play. Just give them the money and tell them to, no you way. know, because they saw these instruments coming in, you see. And they said, we don't want that bloody, you know, rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, just take it easy. Yeah. You know, you know me. And why don't you just listen? And then if you don't like it, then okay, fine. Have another drink and then you yeah, might. <laughs> yeah. But then listen, you know, just give us a chance. Yeah. And so I said to the boys, you know, keep the, keep the volume down and we'll do a few ballads first. Um, some Frankie Lane songs, you know, I Believe, and like that, which they understood. Mm. And then we'll hit them with Great Balls of Fire, you know, when, <laughs> which we did. And by the end of that night, the whole thing changed from like pay them off at the beginning to the secretary of the club again, who was booking the talent, said, if I call the police station and ask to get an extension, drinking out, could, we, could you play until uh, midnight? No, on the same night? Same night. No from the way. beginning of the night was like, you know, you, oh my God, the electric guitars and drums and, you know. Yeah, yeah. To what about if we move the tables and chairs back and we can have a, a can dance, have a da a dance till, and I said sure, but you know it'll cost you a few, yeah. few more, um, <laughs> few more pounds, yeah. and uh, and we can do that. So it changed in in one show, from like oh oh you know is this going to work, to yeah you know yeah, we can working. we can go to midnight, and then it caught on in the Welsh valleys. We would then they would start having dances in these workmen's clubs midweek because normally they would only have entertainment on the weekends yeah. you know but then we would be playing different clubs different nights throughout the week for for dancing as well you know so that was the beginning in south wales of rock and roll music and what a coming into the clubs pleasure to play such a part in it like yeah. what an amazing thing unbelievable yeah it was to see um because I, I realized then, if it's presented right, you know, you can, you can do it. Yeah. Because you, but you have to have a foot in the door first. Were you aware, visiting London, were you aware that you were going to be big fish, if, you know, in, in Wales? Wait, and, then, and then you would be smaller fish in a bigger pond when you, when you made it to the city? Uh, or no, you, did you go quite confident? I was always confident. Brilliant. You know, because... Thank God I have a voice, you know, a big voice. So I thought I'd get people to listen to me, you know. So, um, but it was a strange thing because by the time I got to London, the Beatles had, had, uh, had happened and the Stones, you know, in, uh, in the early 60s. So the, the scene had changed slightly because I was still, even though the Beatles were doing it and the Stones, you know, they were doing 50s rock and roll mm. music. Um, but it was, uh, it, the sound I think was changing, you know, the, the, the attitude as well, the presentation, because I remember, you know, when I was trying to get a record contract, you know, they said, you, I don't think that, that macho stuff works anymore, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, and I said, well, it works in South Wales. I mean, it's not that far away. Yeah. Cardiff is not that far away from London. If it was working there, it can work here, I think. You know, so, but it was the powers that be were a little scared of me, 
you know that this I think often they're and it's still true today they're scared of change and, and they want they want to know what is going to work and they yeah. don't want to take risks you yeah know? even though you know I was the same age as John Lennon and Ringo Starr you know born in 1940 um, they looked at because I didn't have straight uh, hair you know, because the Beatles haircut, you know, came around then, and the Stones, you know, went a bit longer, but it was mm. still lank, straight hair. And there's me, you know, still with the Tony Curtis curls on the top, you know, with it. Yeah. And um, and again, a macho, more of a macho image. I mean, I remember opening for the Rolling Stones in Oxford Street, and. Um, they, they were a lot, I was singing at this club in, in Oxford Street. We got a reg, um, resident, residency there, me and my, my band from Wales. And they were like uh, 20 to 30-somethings coming in there, you know. But when the Stones played there, you had teenagers coming in. You know, young teenagers. Yes. So I remember being on stage and it was like in, in a basement in Oxford Street. It was called Beat City in those days. And... Um, and these kids were, I, know, I mean, the paint was coming off the bloody walls, you know, it was in the basement. And I'm on there, and these little girls were looking at me like, going, ah, you, know, I'm, you know, calling for, them, for their mothers. <laughs> so, but I was doing basically this, and then Mick Jagger came on afterwards, doing basically the same thing. But maybe he wasn't looking as threatening or something. You know, he looked more like a boy. Yeah, you know, I can see that that they could relate to. I think, but also there's a, like, as I said, the last few weeks, just doing a deep dive on so many of your performances and stuff. There's just this kind of like, it's energy and then some. Mm. And is that how you were performing in the clubs in Wales as well? Oh, definitely. And it's just it's there's there's a confidence mm. that you can't teach and you can't learn. No, it's just you've got it. Well, when, when uh, going back to that YMCA again on a Friday night, when I got there, there were teenagers, you know, in, in the YMCA. And um, the singer that was, that didn't show up that night, he was doing like Cliff Richard songs and Elvis Presley songs, but I think it was, but then I came on there, you know, and did Little Richard and, and, and you know, <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis with more of a sort of a, an aggressive style, I yeah. would think. And the way you moved as well. Yeah, yeah. So these, the, the kids were looking at me like, oh my God, you know, what's... Uh, they didn't know what to make of me, I don't think, at first. But then the more I, did, the more I sang, the more we did. They got dancing and they were into it. You know what I mean? So they were... And when you first made that move to London, was it hard living, you know? What were you living off? What, where did the money come from and how did... Because there must have been five of you or yeah. four of you in the back, manager yeah. as well. Yeah. What did well, living yeah. look like? Well, the, the guy, his, his name was Gordon Mills, the man that... He was a Welshman and he came to visit his mother because he was in a group called the Viscounts. He was already in show business. And I'd seen him on television. And he came to visit his mother and saw me in one of these workingmen's clubs and said, you should be in London. I said, I understand that, but what do I do when I get there? And he said, well, I'll show you around. He wasn't thinking about management at that point just to help me. And, uh, you know, he said, if you come up there, I'll, I'll take you to, because he was writing songs. Mm. And he had, he'd had some hit songs that he had written by other artists. And he said, I'll take you to the music publisher, you know, and play you some stuff. 
and take you around and show you, introduce you to some people and see what you think, which he did. And I said, sure, I can, you know. And he said, well, then you've got to come to London with your group. And he put us up in a, a basement flat in Ladbroke Grove. So we, we were there. 1960, this was 1964 by this time. And, um, but I already had a record contract with Decca because I'd signed that in 63 because we had sending tapes around. Okay. You know, and, um, and so uh, I got an audition with Decca Records because of one of these uh, demos that we sent. And so um, I was signed to, to Decca, but they didn't know what to do with me, you know. So then Gordon Mills came on the scene, saw me in this, this club in Wales, brought me to London, and uh, within the year, you know, this was in the summer of 64, he had written It's Not Unusual, which was my first hit song. So by the, you know, by, in six months, I had a number one record from the time I actually moved to London. Are you loving it? I bet you are. I bet you are. I love listening back to this one. I listen back to all the episodes, you know, to make sure that I'm happy with everything. And um, this one was just such a pleasure to listen back to. So here we are at the halftime break. Um, sorry to interrupt. This is just the part of the podcast where I take a little minute of your time just to let you know what I'm up to. Um, and essentially, we are on the road. We are gigging. We are playing festivals. Um, we are playing concerts, our own gigs. And uh, we're very busy, but we're very happy about that. So thank you to all of you that keep us busy and support what we do. It means the world. Um, I'm also hoping to get in some more episodes to record with other guests for the podcasts. As it stands, this is the last one that I have recorded. So I imagine this will be the last episode of Series 2. And if that's the case, thank you very much for all of your support regarding the podcast. Um, It's something that I love to do, and I hope you're enjoying it. For any of you, I always say this, if you feel as if you could do with a little bit more George Ezra in your life, and you never know, that might be the case, then head over to georgeezra.com and you'll find all of the information regarding tour dates and festivals and music, videos, uh, merchandise and the journal that I write each week. That's all there. So you can head over there to get your fix. Um, And now, let's hear a word from Mind Charity. Now, without further ado, let's jump into the second half of this conversation with Tom Jones. So he was primarily, he was a songwriter. Yeah. And he sees you and says, I can help out, you know, we can expand this. Yeah. Um, and then you've been in London six months, seven yeah. months. Mm-hmm. And he, does he just show you the recording of it? He, he was writing it. He was in the middle of recording it, and um, a friend of his, Les Reed, who's also a songwriter, had been commissioned to rec- uh, to write a song for Sandy Shaw, who by this time had had like two or three number one records. And um, so Les called Gordon and said, I need a song for Sandy Shaw. Do you have anything? And Gordon said, well, I'm, I'm writing this song called It's Not Unusual, and it's got this Bayonne beat, which Sandy Shaw was using 
with some of the songs that she had done. So he said, uh, you know, I've got this, so we could finish it off together. It's not finished yet. And then they asked me if I would do the demo on it in um, Regent Street, a recording place called Regent Sound. And when you were hired as a vocalist to record a demo, would you have been paid for that time regardless yes. of what the song yes. was then used for? Yeah, yeah. Because Gordon, in order to get some money for us, you know, we were doing the odd gig here and there, but um, I was doing demos, you know, of his songs, sometimes other people's songs, uh, for Leeds Music, who he wrote for. So this is how this song came about. You know, would you do the demo on this song? I said, sure. So I went there with my Welsh band to Regent Sound and, uh, and we did this. It's not unusual. And when I heard it back, I said, uh, I got to have this song. You know, and Le I mean, Gordon was going, well, you know, I mean, he wasn't fussed about it, but Les was like, well, Sandy Shaw, you know, she's had these number one records. <laughs> Who the hell are you to, you know, to get hold of this song? I said, well, I've got to have this song. If I don't get this song, I'm going back to Wales. I mean, that's how strong I felt about this song. And when you said things like that, you meant it? I meant it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, what else could I threaten them with? You know, what else could I threaten Gordon with than, than sort of yeah, saying, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm going back? And, you know, and do some shows in his workmen's clubs, which I was doing all right with, you know. So, um, so that I th they played it to Sandy Shaw. I mean, I heard this afterwards, and she said, "Whoever's singing that song, that's his song." <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't sing it like that. And the recording that we hear today hmm. is that the one that Sandy Shaw heard, or did you no, go and then re-record it? We re-recorded it then. It was just a rhythm section, my rhythm section, and um, Les and Gordon doing the background. But da ba da ba da. It was like you know voices. And I go, it's not unusual to be loved. But it was like a milder version. And then when we got in, we tried it like that, first of all. But that didn't work. Uh, but then Peter Sullivan, who was my recording manager, said, if we're going to do it, because he saw me uh, as a rock singer, yeah. you know, which I was really. Yeah, I mean, are. I was wearing leathers and bloody, you know. And, uh, but we couldn't get a song like that. I, I put one out called Chills and Fever, which was before, it's not unusual, didn't make it. Made some noise, but and not And did enough. you release that as Tom Jones? Yes. Okay. That was the first one. That was in the, um, the summer of 64. But by the end of the year, then, we, we, had, we had done, it's not unusual. So he said, if we're going to do it, we've got to make it harder. You know, we've got to make, we've got to, it's got to explode. Get, into hit, get it to hit them when they hear it. You exactly. Know? You know, before you even open your, vo your, your mouth, the, the arrangement has to be strong in order to, you know, perk people up. So what do we, what do we do instead of, you know, ba -da -ba -da -ba -da, you know, vocally? So the, the, the bass drum was boom, chip, boom, chip, boom, chip, boom, right? So he said, we need to capitalize on that. So Les Reed said, brass, let's, let, let me write brass. You know, all right, let's try it. So there was that bam, chip, bam, chip, bam, bam, It was just going along with the bass drum, really. And it's sexy already. Once the song starts, it's got that yeah. kind of... Yeah, so it's like it was pumping before I opened my mouth. So that's, uh, you know, that's how that happened. But it's it's... And it happened very quickly, but it didn't seem, it seemed a long time. 
because of everything you had done up until that point. Yeah, you know, everything was was moving and where you know I was playing these clubs and and the, you know the buzz was around. You know, it was like it was a tremendous feeling to play all these places in in South Wales. You know, and I'm thinking, wow, this is it now. You know, somebody needs to see me now, and we go from here. But then it seemed like a long time from um, July of '64, and then we recorded it's not unusual in November '64. But it didn't come out until January '65. Okay. So that it seemed like a long time, you know. But looking back, it was six months. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah. is, which, is, which is not bad. So um, so that was it. Then we uh, were. Was it really kind of? And then you're off. It's oh. kind of the songs released. There's no denying. It's just wildfire. Unbelievable. And it went to number one very quickly. I mean, it was, and uh, yeah, that was it. It was. It's not just. It's you know. I don't know when I will have first heard that song, but it's just been a part of my life. It's mm -hmm. one of you know. You've got these songs that you've been a part of and released that are just. They're timeless, and that's what people want, isn't it? Do you want? And you you can't tell that at the time. You kind of released it in all that success and go. Do you know what? In however many decades, you know, it's still it be will still be yeah. as exciting. Yeah, it, it, it's just such a. It's just magic. It's, it's yeah, it was. Uh, you hope for a uh, for a song like that, you know, for a record like that. The recording of it is tremendous, you know, and still today. I mean, they're using. Um, the arrangement on a commercial uh, uh, on the TV, and I'm not even singing on it. <laughs> it's just the back. It's the track. You know what I mean? Yeah. Of you know, bam, 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 da, 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 da. you know. I mean, it's it's there, and they just use that. Yeah, yeah. So it's very, it's so recognisable. But you need that combination of uh, the arrangement has to be almost as strong as the vocal performance. You know, it has to be there. And something at, at this point in our conversation that's obvious or is evident is just your kind of, and then what's the next thing? You know, we've done, now what's yeah. the next thing? And something happens at some point where mm -hmm. you find yourself in New York for the mm -hmm. first time. Well, you see, it's not unusual it did that. It was, it was a hit worldwide. So it was big in America. So now you are, those records you'd been getting off the Navy guys and everything, yeah. you're part of that. And yeah. you've travelled across the ocean. Amazing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a tremendous thing. You know, and the Beatles have said this and the story. You know, we were, we were listening to American music and then we were part of it. You know, you're selling it back to, to the Americans, really. But it was based on American pop music, really. Mm. And, um, yeah, that was it. You know, all of a sudden... I remember It's Not Unusual came out in January of 65. It was number one by March the 1st, you know, in, in Britain. And it got, in, it, was number, it got into the top ten in America right away. So by April or May, I was in New York doing an Ed Sullivan show, <laughs> you know, in 65. So that, that the first part of, of 65 was like unbelievable. Yeah. That I had done, you know, this TV. I'd done Sunday night at the London Palladium, which was the biggest we yeah. had in this country. And uh, and then I'm doing the Ed Sullivan show from New York, and I'm thinking, my God! And they, I remember being in this hotel in New York, the Gorham Hotel, and uh, it was warm, so it was must have been about May then. And they used to honk the the the, the, the taxis used to, you know, all night. They've stopped doing that now, 
Only but, just. <laughs> yeah, but, but then, you know, so I'm, I'm laying on the bed there with the windows open and I'm hearing these cabs honking the horns and I'm thinking, my God, I'm in New York. Yeah. You know, booked to do the Ed Sullivan show. And like a couple of months before, I was in Ladbroke Grove. <laughs> in a basement. So, in a basement, <laughs> yeah. So it was unbelievable. And there's one story I would love for you to share. I just think it's such an amazing story, which is when you go home, you know, after this explosion and you've got your Jaguar and your dad's getting ready to go off to work. Oh, yeah. But I love that story. Yeah. Well, that was, um, yeah, 1966 then, when I had my first car I ever owned, because I couldn't afford one when I lived in Wales. Um, it was a Jaguar, an S-type Jaguar. Red. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> a red jack. Uh, and so I used to get back to Pontypridd as many, uh, any time I had a couple of days off, I would, you know, shoot down to South Wales in, uh, in my red Jaguar. So I remember going, uh, I was in the house, my mother's house, mother and father's house, and um, my mother was cutting sandwiches for my father, you know, and I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to work, Sunday night. I said, you can't go to work tonight. You know, I'm only here for a few days. He said, yeah, I'm a coal miner. I got to, you know, I'm working. I said, well, you, I don't feel right now. You know, you going down the mine and me, you know, being a successful pop singer, making money, riding around in a bloody red Jaguar mm. and you were, you're gonna go down the mine. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't feel right about that. So then when I could prove to him that I could give him enough money to stop him, then I retired him. I said, you can't. Because if something had happened to him, you know, because it could, oh, of course. you know, going to a, down a coal mine, any shift that you, when you go down there, you know, you're putting your life on the line. And I said, if something happened to you, I, I wouldn't forgive myself. So, um, but then he said, like, well, yeah, but how long is it going to last, though? You know, pop music. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I said, well, hopefully it'll last for the rest of my life. And um, hopefully. But, but I knew I would be a successful singer. You know, once you, once you get a hit record, as you know yourself, you know, once you start getting hit records, you know that you're, you're in it. Mm. You know, whether the, whether the next record's going to be a hit or not, you, but you know you've you've created enough momentum to to carry you, you know. To so if it gets a little slim record-wise for a while, your your live shows and your TV appearances, you know, things like that, will will do it mm. until the next one, hopefully. Uh, so so I knew that. I mean, I was confident that I could re make him retire, give him enough money uh, not to go to work, and he was in his fifties then. So we would have to have worked until he was 65. In those days, I think it's 60 now. But in those days, he should have, he would have have to have been there till he was 65. And I think he was like 55 at that point. So, um, so I convinced him not to work. And, and I, that was a big deal for me, mm. you know, to stop him working. This first trip to New York, I mean, up until a year ago today, you were still living out in LA, mm -hmm. so something, about America resonated with you. I mean, I, I love it. I yeah. can't put my finger on what it is, mm. but y your career 
Is it fair to say it was bigger in America for a period than um, it was back home, or was it equal? You know. Yeah, it was equal, but I, I think with um, with the tours, for instance, in the because I, I had a TV show in the late '60s. That's that's what really got me across to the American public. Even though I'd had um, three or four hit records, uh, half a dozen hit records. <clears throat> by the time I started this TV show in the late 60s. By that point, it would have been, it's not unusual. Yeah, it's not unusual. What's New Pussycat? <clears throat> there was a ballad called With These Hands, which, mm -hmm. was, which was big in, in America, maybe bigger in America than it was here. Um, would you have released Green Green Grass of Home? Yeah, the Green Green Grass of Home, 1966. So, um, yeah, so it was a Green Green Grass of Home, and then Delilah, Looks like I'm never going to fall in love again, you know, help yourself, love me tonight, you know, up to, yeah, yeah. she's a lady. I mean, it was in the late 60s, um, from the mid-60s into the 70s. But that this TV show started, you see. I had my own TV show in 69. And how did that come about? Uh, I was doing Ed Sullivan shows in the States and other, other variety shows in the States. Sammy Davis had a show. Um, there was uh, Steve Lawrence, who was Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, had a show. So I was doing these, and Red Skelton, they all had these variety shows. In the States, which I would guest on, if you get a record out, you know, you go and guest on a show. So, um, but I, I did a series of Ed Sullivan shows, because Ed Sullivan liked me. So he would always get me back, you know, I mean, I did a load of them. Uh, in 65, up until 68, I did about six Ed Sullivan shows. So um, during one of these shows in 68, uh, ABC television wanted a young presenter, you know, a, a performing presenter to do a show because they had Dean Martin um, and Andy Williams and you know, people like that in the States mm. were doing musical shows and Perry Como, <clears throat> but they didn't have a young sort of rock, pop, you know, pop rock kind of. Uh, so when they saw me on the Ed Sullivan show, they thought maybe I could do it. So they asked if I would do a pilot, which is the first show, mm. and try it on ABC television um, for a weekly series. So that was in, uh, in 69. So when that thing exploded, in America especially then, uh, it got me into people's homes. Once a week, you were Once on their TV week. screens. Exactly. So then it was huge. So then it, uh, I started playing arenas in America, which there was no such thing in, this, in, in Britain. It wasn't then. even an option. No. So in, in this country, for instance, in 1974, I was playing theatres on, on a British tour, because that's as big as you could go then. You know, you play theatres twice a night in all these different theatres throughout Britain. Then I would go to America and do a summer tour of arenas, you know, 20,000 seats, Madison Square Gardens and the like. So uh, the Labour government got in, in 74. So my accountant said, look, if, <clears throat> if, if the Labour government gets in and the tax goes up, which we think it's going to, you better think about not coming back for a while oh, because really? yeah if you come back physically 
you know, once you put your foot on British soil, 84% and 98% on unearned income. So whether whatever bank interest you've got or no any way. investments that you have that are paying dividends, they're going to take 98% of it. <gasps> so that's sort of <laughs> that sort of went, you know, being because you know, he said you're making in 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 the summer of '74, uh, you're going to be making all the, playing all these arenas, arenas in the states. You come back at the end of the year, and you're going to hand it all over. So um, you better think about that. And a lot of other entertainers did the same thing that could perform in America, especially, you know, Rod Stewart, you know, people like that. I think Elton John was the only one that didn't, you know, because he was involved with the football team. There's a lot of things that he had going uh, in this country that, uh, but most, most of us. Moved that, to LA? Yeah, that could make a living in, in the States. You know, we, we, we moved. And until um, you know, and let ride the storm, which which I was I wasn't happy about. You know that bothered me because I I'm British. I never became an American. You know I didn't I didn't put in for an American citizenship um, because I knew that it, it would change. It wasn't going to stay like that forever. And then you know I could, I'd be able to come back, but I had to stay away for ten years from seventy. I left in '74. Uh, I didn't come back till '84. Well, you know, yeah. And I said I was so pissed off with the British government, and I lived in America. And I almost bought an American car. <laughs> That's how pissed <laughs> off I was. But I said, you know, I didn't. I always, you know, drove British cars. But, uh, but the, yeah, that was. It was. It was painful. And when in this time would that have been the period when you started to spend time in Vegas? Yeah. Well, what happened was I went to Vegas in 68. Did it blow your mind the first time you went? Well, I went in 65 when I first went to, um, when I was doing all these Ed Sullivan shows uh, in 65, TV went to color, from black and white to color in oh, 1965. Okay. So they couldn't transmit from New York in color. They didn't have the facilities. So they moved the Ed Sullivan show from New York to LA because of the color. So then I went to LA to do, to do an Ed Sullivan show um, in September of, uh, of 65. And that was, um, that was the, you know, when I thought, wow, this, yeah, this yeah. is nice. You know, this and then on that trip, that's you, because it's only a three hour then drive Vegas, to Vegas. Yes. So, so 65, I went to LA and then from there, because you, when you do a show like that, you're there for the week. You know, you go in on the Monday and you, you rehearse for the week and you do the show live on a Sunday. So you got that week there. And uh, so I thought, well, let's pop to Vegas and see what it's like, which I did in 65. And I thought, wow, you know, this, uh, it was only small then, you know, it wasn't, wasn't very big, but they had those hotels um, with the showrooms, you know, which was, uh, which was the equivalent would be the talk of the town in London which was the Hippodrome, you know, was, was like that. It was a, a show, big showroom. And I thought, wow, you know, I could, I could do this. You know what I mean? I went to see some, some shows in Vegas and um, so I liked it then. Was it always a hedonistic place? Like, was it always kind of on the fringe of uh, 
because now it feels like the place you go to where certain things you can get away with that you can't in other mm. states and things like that. Well, you know, see, gambling and, and the 24-hour uh, liquor law, you know, that, that, that goes 24 hours a day. Well, I don't think I've ever been in a, in a city that has a, a drinking a liquor law that goes 24 hours a day, you know, especially then. <laughs> but it, it was, was the same then? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Nevada, you know, so they had gambling and uh, shows. You know, you'd have the, the main showrooms would be twice a night, 8 and 12. Then you'd have these lounges that would go on through the night, <laughs> you know. That uh, so if you if you weren't careful, you know you you could be up twenty four hours. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so 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 that was it. So I thought, wow, this is this. This is great. I could do it a bit of this. So then in sixty eight, they they um, they offered me a, uh, to go to the Flamingo Hotel uh, in Las Vegas. I have a residency. I try it. You know, it was a three year signed a three year contract, one month per year. So, which I did. Meanwhile, my TV show came out, you see? Because that was in 68, 69, the TV show hit. So the TV show must have helped the Vegas. Oh, tremendous. So then uh, the Flamingo wasn't big enough then. The showroom wasn't, wasn't big enough. So they moved me to the International, which, um, which was then by this time 1970, and, uh, or 69 or 70, and Elvis opened it. And uh, no, sorry, Barbara Streisand opened it because Elvis was frightened to go in first because the sound might not be right. He said, "Oh no way!" So he wanted someone to yeah, step someone up. Yeah, to go in. So Barbara Streisand did, and he went second, and I went third. So into the international, which was part of uh, of the Hilton operation, you know, which was the Flamingo was part of it. So they had me for three years anyway. So. Um, I did 68 and 69 of the Flamingo, then moved to the International for 1970, and then Caesar's Palace came knocking, so I went there, 71, and and then I used to do a month a year, you know, in, in Las Vegas. And so did Elvis Presley. So you know. when did you first meet Elvis? Uh, 65. Okay, so when, so much happened in 1965. Oh, unbelievable. That first year was unbelievable for me. Yeah, there I was in September 65. And it's just that thing, once it starts going, it's yep. a snowball effect. It's, yeah. You know. So I went to do, again, you know, the Ed Sullivan Show moving to LA because it went colour. Mm. So while I was there doing the Ed Sullivan Show, they said Elvis is at Paramount Studios and would like to meet you. So, wow. Yeah. Elvis Presley wants to meet me. So I, I went to, to, to meet him. And he said... Uh, how do you sing like that? <laughs> and I said, well, you're partly to blame, you know. <laughs> yes. Stick to you. And uh, so, so that was it. And he had, I had three singles out at the time. It's not unusual, What's New Pussycat, and With These Hands. And he had the three. He said, I bought the th your three records. And he was singing With These Hands when he was walking towards me on this set, this film set, and I had the ballad out called With These Hands, and he was doing it. With his hands. And I thought, my God, here comes Elvis Presley walking towards me singing my song. What was, I don't want to go too far down this tangent, but what was he like in person? Was he the same as, you know, what I see as Elvis was mm -hmm. the real thing? That's oh, yeah. Right. Elvis Presley was Elvis Presley. He lived that. 
you know, I mean, he had these guys around him, and when he spoke, everybody shut up. You know what I mean? He made a statement. Yeah. And uh, you'd have to listen. Uh, and that was it. But then he'd laugh. You know, he'd say something serious, and then he, then he would laugh. But he, he created, I think because he was uh, so big, and uh, Parker wanted to hold him away from things, uh, he put a price tag on him. You know, and uh, he didn't want him to do anything unless you he got paid. Mm. So uh, he created his own world, you know, with with these guys around him that uh, that he could trust. You know, and they would play football, American football. Mm. You know, five a side or something. It's you know. important to have those people that you trust around, yeah, yeah, especially exactly. for someone like Elvis. That's right. But then when he started to f go down, you know, mm. drug the drug situation, pills mostly, I think. They then tried to help him, tried to stop him, and he fired a lot of them. Uh, because he wouldn't then, he wanted to be, yes, Elvis, no, Elvis, you know what I mean? Yeah, when yeah. they were going along with him, when everything was great, when he was riding the crest of a, of a wave, you know, and it was Elvis Presley and Coca-Cola, I mean, that was like America, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, then the Beatles came, you know, and, and sort of sort of started to shake him up a bit. Um, but uh, that's that's how it was. So he created his own life. And I see. So the, 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 yeah. Okay. That's. But that then makes it, sense. it got old, you know, with him as well. He wanted to play Vegas because he had failed in the fifties. Mm. He went there in the fifties, and he weren't ready for rock and roll then. Mm. So he wanted that. He came to see me in '68, and said, you know, we have, he felt we were similar in what we were doing, and um, so that sort of got him to make a comeback at 69 in Vegas. So he lived that lifestyle then, you know, staying up all night, sleeping all day in Las Vegas. But then that got old with him, you see. It was yeah. great at the beginning because it was new for him. He was back doing live shows again, which he loved to do, which he wasn't doing when he was making those movies. Yeah, you know, of course. He, he didn't do any live shows because nobody could afford him. You know, so... Uh, so he, he loved, the, the, when he got, came back the early years, in 69 onwards, in Las Vegas, he loved that because he could sing every night. And he had his own, you know, suite and his own, his own world. He created his own mm. world and, and going and doing two shows. And, and he loved that for a while, but then that got old. Yeah, yeah. You know. For whatever reason in anybody's career, there is... I was talking to... On the first series, I sat down with Ed Sheeran, and he was mm. saying a similar thing. He was kind of like, "I'm aware I'm on top at the moment, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm aware that doesn't—that's not forever." Mm. Um, and in—is it the late '90s you released Reload? Yeah. Um, yes, it was. Well, the first thing that kicked kicked it off again for me was. Well, I'm uh, not. It, it's not. The, I heard you say in one interview because I don't get the sense that it went away, but you is what you touched on earlier, of that thing, you don't necessarily have to be having hit after hit every year. Mm -hmm. Once you've got that, that, that uh, foundation... Established, yeah, you've got to become established. You can put the tours on sale and people want to come for that. Yeah. And then what you had, which a lot of people don't have, is again, you come with another hit 40 years after your first one. Yeah. Um, I heard a fact that that album, Reload, is your biggest selling album to yeah, date. Yeah, and it didn't come out in America. I mean, that's without America. It was huge worldwide. What, what, what was happening between 
Um, what yeah. happened up in the years up to Reload? Right. Well, um, what happened was we tried, the hits were not coming. I couldn't get the material, you know, because I'm not a songwriter. And um, we just could not, I had, I had one hit called Say You'll Stay Until Tomorrow, which was a country thing um, in the 70s. And then um, I signed with Polygram in 1980, I think. Yes, 80. And they they tried you know, they they loved the green green grass of home and some of the country things that I'd done, <clears throat> so they said let's what about some country albums? So I was making these country albums one a year. In the states, they were selling on the country, but they were not releasing them anywhere else in the world. Mm. So I so was to everyone else in the world. It just like you weren't doing. I start exactly to Europeans. You know, they said, you, where, "Where are the records?" I wasn't putting records out, you know, in America, but they were not going out anywhere else. So that was a problem. So I signed with Polygram in 1980 for um, five albums over five years with an option for a sixth in '86, and I, I said, no, I can't do, I can't do this anymore, you know. And um, I, I've got to get back into mainstream, you know. I've got to get back into pop, pop radio. And that was the way it was. So in in uh, in England, we put out a ballad called uh, "The Boy from Nowhere," which was about El Cordobes, who was a bullfighter, and um, that was a hit in England. In but that was in '87. You know, it took to '87, and then '88, I did "Kiss" with the Art of Noise. So that got me back on the top forty radio again. So by the time Reload came up, which was '99. Uh, you know, I had, I had had some uh, some hits. And where was? Do you remember the conversation before Reload happened? Was it your idea to have the featured artists? Was it? Was it like? Well, why don't we bring artists together? What, yeah. How did that conversation look? Yeah, I don't know who came up with the original idea, but because I was doing any time I would be on TV, doing something with somebody else, it made noise. You know, so. Why don't we do an album like that? Somebody said. <laughs> so, so that was it. So, first of all, um, I signed with Gut Records, and um, they were thinking of more mainstream people to do it with. But then my son Mark said, "Why don't you do it with you know? Because any time you do a, a a duet with somebody on TV, unexpected." You know, with a younger band, for instance, you know, people go, "Wow, you know, that's look at that." But it's got such a great mix on the record because you've got the stereophonics, yeah, and you've got the cardigan. Well, that's so we went th that way. You know, Mark, my son, he said, "When are we?" The Porter's Head on it as well. Yeah, Porter's yeah. Head. Yeah. So um, I said, "Okay." I mean, I, you know, that's fine with me as long as we can do some stuff that I like. Yeah, yeah, and also you, also you've got Van Morrison on it. And yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, album. James Dean Bradfield. And was that the album that had Sex Bomb on? Yes. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, so we did that with Moose T. You know, he came up with that with that song. So let's give that a shot. So we did. So we did. Uh, Mama told me not to come with the stereophonics. Yeah. You know, and uh, burning down the house so the cardigans. So I asked them each time I had a meeting with with different people, what would you like to do? You know, what songs would you like to do? And they were, you know, we started throwing songs around. Uh, 
like Keris Matthews. You know, we did Baby It's Cold Outside. I said, what do you, what do you fancy, Keris? I'd like to do something with a big band. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> so that's when we thought, you know, Baby It's Cold Outside with a, with a big orchestra, which we did. And uh, so I went to um, people that they had worked with, like the Stereophonics, we used their producer. Oh, okay, cool. So it's all different producers on oh, the album. Yeah. I didn't realise oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were not, it was none of my producers, you know, people that I'd worked with, they were all new producers as far as I was concerned. And um, so we went, you know, with, with the Cardigans, you know, we went to Sweden. To re I went to Sweden to record with them. So I went to their territories with their producers mm. in studios that they would have ordinarily used. You know, so uh, so we did it like that, and 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 it was great. I mean, I had a lot of lot of fun doing it. Uh, Kelly, you know, Kelly Jones. He said, "Well, because we sang it live," and he said, "I'm singing, and I'm looking, and I'm thinking, Jesus, I'm singing with Tom Jones." He said, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know he yeah, said, yeah. I saw you through the glass, you know, and it was like, wow. Yeah. So, uh, no, it was it was a lot of lot of fun. I think that in. Again, in, in so many successful careers, there's this thing of not reinventing, but looking at it, okay, what do we do next? You yeah. can't release the same thing every time, you know. No. It, and um, something that I think is, you know, you've done that again and again, and, and putting yourself in a position where you're back on TV again in The Voice, and it's like your original programme, it's once a week, you're in people's homes. Yeah. And, you're, and um, that must be a brilliant thing for you to be a part of. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's it's um, it's something that I mean I'm involved in the music business, but I'm I'm sort of giving uh, trying to help other singers, which I which I've always done. Yeah. You know, if somebody comes up and asks me, "How did you get started? What did you do? What you know? Or what should I do? Or what?" I'm always giving advice whenever I can. So doing the voice is is perfect for me because I can pass on now. You know, and be part of because we do coach numbers as well. You know, I get up and sing with uh, yeah, yeah. with my fellow coaches. Well, do you know what? I don't often get to see it just because of the nature of I'm on tour. Yeah. And uh, one night, I don't know how many months ago it happened because I watched it as it was released. Mm -hmm. But it was when Ollie Murs started to sing. It's not unusual, and you got up and sang it, uh -huh. and it was just amazing. I remember being on the sofa just going, "What?" Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank God my voice is still there. It's still it's still working. One thing I'd Strong. like to ask actually before I leave today mm -hmm. is a recommendation on your humidifier. I heard in an interview that you use them, yeah. and I would love to. I think that would help me a lot. Yeah, humid. Well, you've got to be. Um, I carry uh, a humidity gauge okay. to make to see what what the humidity is because you can have too much as well. Okay. So you don't want to put um, humidifiers so on. So you test the room. If yeah, it needs test the room. Bit, you, you exactly. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, and um, then if it if it's uh, below. You know, because I learned in the 60s from an ear, nose and throat doctor that singers need at least 60% humidity, okay. especially when you sleep, you know, so you don't get uh, dehydrated and drink plenty of water. You know, mm. you have to drink plenty of water, but humidity is very important. But, um, the, the, you know, the worst places was like Vegas and not so much now, but uh, years ago. I find ago, in America because it's just air conditioned everywhere. Yeah. You know? So you have to have uh, humidity to combat that. Mm. So you learn things like that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, and I've heard you say again and again that you 
won't retire. No. Um, and it's obvious that you love what you do. I, Definitely. I think that there's so many reasons I can see why people are a fan of Tom Jones, and there's the voice mm-hmm. and that that's instantly you know appealing, mm. and your your performance and everything. But I think having spent the time over the last few weeks watching so so much footage and everything, I think mm-hmm. the most appealing thing is just how open you are, and mm. it's, it's like a um, I don't think you can fake that. I don't think you can because f- it's. I think you have the ability to make people feel as if they know you. Yeah. Has that ever gone too far for you? Have you ever felt like, oh, because I don't think you consciously do it, but mm-hmm. have you ever gone, oh, I wish I hadn't said that? Or, like, maybe that's a bit too much. Mm. Well, sometimes you, because cause I am open, uh, sometimes if somebody asks me a question, I'll give you an answer. And sometimes you can be misquoted or just use, you know, sometimes they'll use a part of, a, of, a, of an answer. But only you know the controversial parts sometimes, mm. and you say, "Well, I didn't say that," and then they play it back to you, and I did say it, but in not con- in that context. Yeah. You know, it's it's part of a sentence, but uh, the, the the whole sentence is not used sometimes. So you have to be careful in sometimes in what you say, you know. And um, but but I don't I don't particularly like that. That's one part of. Of being interviewed sometimes that I don't like is when I can't say what I feel yeah. or it's going to be misconstrued you know or, or, uh, misinterpreted you know, or, or put forward to the public in not in in the way that I didn't say it in that particular yeah. way and context is everything because I've had that a few times where the headline sure I've said it but you've missed out the sentence before and after the exactly. way that makes sense exactly um, yeah, I've, that's, I understand that for sure. Yeah. Um, but I like to be open. You know yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't like to put on false pretenses. I am what I am. You know, I, I am the same uh, when I'm performing or when I'm not. I, I still feel the same. I don't have to put a front on yeah. or become somebody else in order to do what I do. Yeah. You know, I like I like being as natural as as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I, it was a decision I made quite early on, and it was just that you start being interviewed really regularly. Once it starts, mm. that's the thing. And I just remember one day realizing, oh, you haven't put on a character. You've actually gone into these just being yourself. You can't change that now. Yeah. And actually, I'm so happy I did that. Yeah. I, I do think some people have kind of their stage presence carries on into their publicity and everything mm. whereas I'm, I'm happy just as what you're saying it's a safer place when you're yourself because you know what you've said and when you've said it and yeah. what you believe in and exactly yeah yeah with the voice you know helping people uh, like the girl that, that won the last one Rudy her name is and on the blind audition she sang Budapest you know that was the song that I heard her singing yeah amazing and I uh, that's where I took because she was singing it so well. Yeah, yeah. You know, she was really, she really did a great job on it. Amazing. And I couldn't tell whether she was a young boy singing or was a girl because she has a deep voice for, the for a girl. The voices can do that. You know, mm. it's that thing of. So with the blind auditions, you see, you don't see them. Yeah, it's brilliant. You know, you're just listening. So sometimes it's, it's confusing. <laughs> but she sang that song great, I thought. You know, and the only other version I was, was yours, the original. Yeah version was yours. She's the only one that I heard, apart from you, doing it. And uh, I thought she did a great job. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for having me today. My pleasure. I loved that. 
brilliant. Yeah, I, I listened it. to what uh, the Elton show when Elton was on your show, yeah, yeah. and I loved it. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was really great. Thank you. Man. Thank you. Thank you very much. And here we are at the end of yet another episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. And of course, a huge thank you to Sir Tom Jones. If you are listening, thank you very much, Tom. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down with you and an experience I will never forget. So thank you very much. Um, A huge thank you to Warren Borg, who edits this podcast together. Thank you, Warren. Oshin Griffin, who does the animations and the designs that we see online. Thank you, Oshin. And Mr. Josh Sanger at the Closer Artist Team. Thank you very much for helping put all of this together. You're all brilliant. You heard it from me. You're all brilliant. And of course, thank you to you. Thank you for listening to this episode and supporting the podcast and what we do. As I was saying earlier, this could well be the last episode of Series 2. And if that is the case, a huge thank you for all of your support. And if you haven't already, go back and listen to uh, some previous episodes. I'm sure there's some names in there that you're familiar with, some that you're not so familiar with. And uh, take it from me, they're all good listens. I hope you're well. I hope you're happy. Why not tell a friend? If you've enjoyed this episode, why not email it to someone or send it over to someone that you think might enjoy it? Might enjoy listening to Tom Jones. Tom Jones. Um, Yeah, I absolutely loved it. So thank you very much. And uh, see you soon. Bye-bye.